I was contemplating whether to go up to this, up on the platform or stand down here based on how many showed up this morning, and uh, I wasn't really sure. I asked Allison. She wasn't sure. I said, okay, would you rather me closer or further away? She wouldn't give me an answer, so I'm going <laughs> to... I don't know what that means, but I'm going to stand down here. It, I'm surprised at how many are here this morning, because uh, I was up early this morning, and I kept looking at the weather, and, and uh, I know I could not... Uh, let me say it again. I knew I had to show up because I think the last two ice storms I haven't come and Daryl has made fun of me. So I refused to uh, be made fun of again. Uh, but I wasn't sure how many were going to show up uh, this morning. But So it's good to see a good number uh, of you have uh, braved the conditions. Uh, I want to do before we look at our text, uh, just thinking of the weather. We've got uh, a handful of our youth and our youth leaders way up at Graphite this weekend and uh, with a couple of other churches, and there's some people from the bridge that are up there. And actually, Ben and Shoshana just left now to go up to Graphite uh, to then turn around and come home. So we know what the roads are like, and uh, let's just pray that uh, God uh, not only would bless our time here as we consider His Word, uh, pray for our Sunday school children downstairs, but let's, let's especially keep in mind uh, and bring before the throne uh, these youth uh, who have been away this weekend and for safety as they, they come back, and for all the parents that get the fun of picking them up at about 4.30 or who knows when uh, this afternoon. Let's just pray. Father, thank you uh, for those who are here this morning, and uh, Lord, we think of those who haven't uh, made it out this morning, and uh, Lord, we think of those who, who are traveling and have been away, and uh, Lord, these are... Uh, uh, horrific conditions on the road. And, and Lord, we just pray for traveling mercies for, for all who are out there. And, and Lord, specifically, we want to pray for the youth who are at Graphite right now and who have been there all weekend. Uh, Lord, we know that you have been speaking through Carlo as he has been uh, ministering to them and uh, that the fun they've been having. And, and uh, Lord, most of them won't even be probably thinking as they're driving home in a bus uh, how terrible the conditions are. Uh, yet, Lord, we pray for the bus driver uh, that you would give him skill and, and wisdom uh, as he drives. Give them safety. Lord, we pray that you would bring them safely uh, home this afternoon. Uh, Lord, and uh, we think of our kids downstairs as well. Lord, just pray for the Sunday school teachers uh, as they present to, to our children the truth concerning your son, Jesus. Lord, we just pray that even at this early age, uh, Lord, that they would see their need and accept Jesus uh, as their personal Savior. And so, Lord, be with us this morning as we once again look at your word. And uh, God, would you uh, give us willing hearts and willing ears to listen and to be changed uh, by the power of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've been pondering what, uh, I don't know if you guys quickly forget what I say the week before, but uh, I've been thinking about uh, what, what we were talking about last week. And I was thinking this morning this command of Jesus that we are to love one another, even, even those that we don't really like that much, we're commanded as followers of Jesus to love one another. And I was thinking this morning, that's a real tough command to obey. And I was just trying to think through some of the implications. And then I started asking myself, well, what are some of the other commands that we find in Scripture that are difficult to obey, not, not always easy to obey. And so I started going through whether there were commands from the Old Testament, whether they were uh, commands of Jesus uh, from, from the pen of Paul, some of the commands in Scripture. And I was thinking, like, do not lie. A basic command. But there are some times that lying is just the easiest thing to do. And we find ourselves in situations where, where white lies almost seem like the appropriate thing to do. And that's a tough command to obey. 
all the time. Or how about uh, thou shalt not covet? We live in a materialistic society and there's people around us that have got some of these really beautiful toys and things and houses and cottages and, and, and bank accounts. And, and, and sometimes it's hard not to be envious, not to want that uh, for ourselves. Uh, do not lust. We, we live in a very sensual time uh, and yet we're commanded uh, to not lust. Uh, Paul says, do everything without grumbling. Now, that's a tough one. I've been told by my family members that occasionally I've been known uh, to grumble. Uh, I thought it was a spiritual gift, uh, grumbling and, and, and complaining, but, but I understand that it isn't. But I tell you, if you get to bed late, you're up early, and the kids come downstairs, and they start driving you nuts within about two minutes, I start to grumble. And yet Paul says, do everything without grumbling. But you know, the command that perhaps is the most difficult for us to always to obey uh, is the command that's in our text this morning. And that's the command that Jesus gives in the upper room. He says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Literally, stop being troubled. Yet we live in a world where having heart trouble is quite common. We don't have to look any further than the Peterborough newspaper, uh, the Toronto Star, Toronto Sun, news on TV, to know that we live in a day and age where there's lots of things to be troubled about. Whether it's in politics, whether it's to do with economics, whether it's to do with terrorism, whether it's to do with illness. I mean, my daughter came home from school asking, have, Dad, have we been vaccinated from measles? Because they're concerned. They're troubled uh, over some of the illnesses that are going on. Uh, we get troubled over the what-ifs in life. Uh, I own my own business. What if the next purchase order doesn't come in? What if I don't have enough money in the bank to pay this month's bills? What if we lose our job? What if there's a problem with the bus with the youth coming home? What if one of my family members gets sick? What if? What if? And then there's the real personal struggles that some of us have. And I, I look out just even with, with the smaller crowd that's out this morning. I, I can see in the faces some of the different struggles and personal issues that, that individuals here are dealing with. Divorced moms, divorced dads trying to make ends meet. Those who've lost a loved one. Those who've lost a job. We got students who are trying to figure out what in the world am I supposed to do with my life? What is beyond high school? What is beyond university? And all of these external struggles, realities, all these what ifs, all these personal struggles, they leave us troubled in heart. They can leave us anxious, desperate, frustrated, in turmoil, concerned, perplexed. I think most of us can relate. One time in our life, being troubled in heart. And to that turmoil of heart, Jesus says this. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Stop being troubled. 
I don't know about you, but I've found myself in situations where I have been troubled in heart. And someone trying to be nice, trying to be helpful, has come to me and said, Brent, don't worry about it. Don't be stressed about it. Don't work yourself up over it. It'll be okay. And if it's my wife, I just get angry with her. She doesn't understand what I'm going through. If it's a friend, I may just end the conversation. If it's someone I don't really care about too much, I feel like punching them in the nose. And yet here's Jesus in this text this morning saying the very same thing. You're troubled in heart? Don't let your heart be troubled. Stop being troubled. And why should I accept it from Jesus any more than I would accept it from anybody else? How do we stop our heart from being troubled? What's the solution? What's the remedy for a troubled heart? I think the disciples understood what it meant to have a heart in turmoil. And we've, this is week three of the, our series in the Upper Room Discourse. Second story living. Lessons that we can learn uh, from the Upper Room Discourse. And over the first two weeks, we've been able to glean two very important lessons from John chapter 13. Uh, the first one was that love for God and, and love for others should be expressed through humble acts of service. And then last week we saw that followers of Jesus are to love each other. And we saw last week how those two lessons in action are a beautiful thing to see. They're magnetic. The world stands up and takes notice. You know, I was reading a, a little story as I was preparing this message. And, and it was talking about a, a VBS, a Vacation Bible School um, session that was taking place at a church. Uh, and one of the boys that went to the VBS didn't have a hand. Uh, and there was a helper that was helping at this VBS. And she was so concerned all week long that this little boy, in the activities and the stories and the things that they would do, someone was going to forget he didn't have a hand. And the little boy was going to be embarrassed. He, he was going to be uh, he was going to stand out for some reason uh, and be embarrassed. And so she was paranoid about it. Well, the last day of the VBS comes and it's her turn to, to, to run a session. And so she gets all the kids to come to the front and she's going to teach them how to build a church. And you've all done this when you were a kid, you know, when you clasp your hands together and here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up. Here's all the people. She gets the kids up. She starts to do it, and then she looks, and she goes, oh, my word, I totally forgot about the little boy who only has one hand. And here he's sitting. He can't participate. All the kids around him are building their church, but he's got one hand. And this little girl beside him notices that the teacher stopped and figures out what's going on. She says, it's okay. He can use my hand. So she clasps his hand, and they do it together. I thought, what a beautiful story. Cute little story. Makes sucks like me. Get teary. But that's the picture of the church. Expressing love for each other through humble acts of service. And loving each other conditionally and sacrificially. That little girl got it. And she gives us this beautiful picture of what the church can look like. 
And so we glean those beautiful messages from John chapter 13, these, these, these life lessons for followers of Jesus that when we put them into action, make the church what it's supposed to be. And we, and we ended last week uh, very quickly looking at well, what happens when you really don't like a person. Like, how do you love a person that's not lovable? And so I shared with you uh, five different things that we can do. And the third one, and I'm not expecting that you remembered it, although I'm sure you wrote it down and put it somewhere important. Um, The third one was this. Ask God to help you to do that which you can't do yourself. So when we're loving another person the way that Jesus loved us, we need God's help. And, And I didn't really get into it last week, but... As we come to the end of John chapter 13, there's this, and and open your Bible, and this will get us into the text uh, for this morning. In John 13, so Jesus has told him all these different things. He's telling that you need each other. And then in verse 36, it says, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus, out of his back pocket of his robe, pulls out a spiritual two-by-four and hits Peter over the back of the head and says, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. What Jesus is saying is to Peter, Peter, you can't even say that you know me without my help. You can't love each other, agape love, sacrificially and unconditionally without my help. And so we, we walk out of chapter 13 with two life lessons and a beautiful picture of what the church should look like. And yet the disciples who are sitting in the upper room have just been whacked one more time with another disturbing revelation from Jesus. And, and if you remember what we've seen so far, remember the, the disciples, are, they're, they're in a time right now where there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of agitation. And we saw that they were having a debate even as they went into the upper room. Who's the greatest? Who would be considered the greatest? Who's going to have the best seat in heaven? And then as they get in there, all of a sudden Jesus starts washing their feet and says that they need to do likewise. As Jesus has watched their feet, they need to do humble acts of service just like that. And then Jesus tells them about Judas, that Judas is going to betray him and tells John, I'm going to give bread, this gesture of friendship. I'm going to give it to the one who's going to betray me. And, And Judas receives it. And Judas leaves the room. And then we saw that Jesus started telling them the things that were going to happen. And Jesus says, now, now, the Son of Man is to be glorified. And if you were to read a few ch- or in chapter 12, you'd see that Jesus said the same thing when he was talking about his need to be put to death. That now was the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then Jesus said he was going to be leaving. And that where he was going, they couldn't follow him. And then we come to the end of chapter 13, and Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice. You're going to deny me. Or sorry, you're going to deny me before the cock uh, crows three times. And so we get to the end of chapter 13, but you've got to remember, the disciples are sitting in the upper room, and there's no chapter breaks uh, in the upper room. We walk into chapter 14, we had a week to think about it. 
They're still sitting in the upper room. All these things have happened. They are disturbed. They are troubled. They are perplexed. And they're afraid. They're afraid of what's going to happen. They believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but, but their idea of a Messiah was like a conquering ruler who's going to improve the conditions for them right there. And then Jesus was talking about the fact that he was going to be put to death, that the Son of Man would be, would be lifted up. How are they to reconcile his talking about death with their concept of what him being Messiah was all about? And he said he was going to leave. Where is he going? And how could he do such a thing? I mean, they had left everything to follow them. They put all their hopes in him. And now he's just going to get up and leave? And leave him surrounded by people that don't really like them? How would they move forward? Where would they get the resources to carry on? These were dark hours for the disciples sitting in the upper room. They were troubled. They had turmoil of heart. Their world was about to cave in all around them. And Jesus knew. He knew the sorrow that was in their heart. He knew the turmoil that was happening. He knew what was going to happen to him. He knew what faced him. He knew that his disciples were going to scatter. He knew that Peter would deny him, that they were going to hide in fear. But as we've seen each week so far, Jesus is not preoccupied with his own needs. His preoccupation is with his disciples' needs and his disciples' concern. And he understands their sorrow. He sees their troubled heart. And so he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. And then he gives some very comforting reasons why they could choose not to be troubled. You see, the solution, the remedy for a troubled heart is simply putting your trust, believing in Jesus. You see, another core characteristic of a follower of Jesus is this. Followers of Jesus are to put their trust in the presence and in the promises and in the person of Jesus. And we see that in the text for today. And if you've got your Bible there, just keep it open. And we'll we'll keep reading into John chapter 14, where we see Jesus giving this command. It's an imperative to his followers. And Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And I want to stop there. I haven't got past that yet. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Stop being troubled. Sounds to me like Jesus is giving them a choice. That they can choose not to be troubled. I was thinking of another kind of heart condition that many of us suffer from. Not quite the same as what we're talking about here, but heartburn. And I don't know if you suffer with heartburn. I, I used to get a lot more than I do now. But heartburn, you never know when it was coming. I mean, I guess some foods you could eat that would would bring it on. But uh, it it was there. Like all of a sudden, it would be upon me and you'd have this indigestion and this burning in your chest. And often, it would happen when I'm laying down. So I've gone to bed, I get this heartburn. And I know in my mind, 
for me anyways, a couple of Tums, and within about 15 minutes, I feel better. But there's a choice. And I go back to the point that I'm lying in bed. And I'm really feeling lazy about getting up to go to the medicine cabinet to grab the Tums, which I know will be the remedy. And so often I just chose to lay for hours suffering with heartburn instead of making the choice and taking the remedy. And here Jesus is saying, stop being troubled. You have a choice. The disciples already are troubled. And Jesus is saying that heart trouble is something that can be conquered. And it's interesting, Jesus is telling his disciples who already believe in him that the remedy for their heart trouble, the solution for heart turmoil, is to believe. Trust. And yet they already believe it. And we may say the same thing, but I've already put my trust in Jesus. I still find myself uh, with times where my heart is troubled. What do you mean the answer is to trust in Jesus as my solution? John Piper, I love how he puts it. Heart turmoil is the fretful failure to fully trust God in the problem that we're facing. And Jesus knew and Jesus knows that his disciples and his followers sometimes fall into this trap where we trust Jesus for our salvation. We trust trust Jesus for eternity but we struggle to trust Jesus in the course of our everyday life. When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to heaven, we trust Jesus. We fully trust in what he's done for us to make those things happen. But when it comes to our day-to-day life, when it comes to our problems and our decisions and our goals and the things that we want to do, where we want to spend our time, the problems that we face, we choose to try to figure it all out ourselves. I know that's my case. I'll I'll, I'll figure it out. As if I'm self-reliant, self-sufficient. And when we fail to trust Jesus with our everydays and our everythings, it leads to heart trouble. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples and what he would say to us this morning is this. Is your heart troubled? Stop being troubled. Heart trouble can be conquered. Trust me. Believe me. Trust me for your every days. Trust me for your every need. Believe me when I say I will never leave you. Believe me when I say that I will constantly be interceding for you. Believe me when I say I understand what you're going through. Believe me when I say that I will send my spirit to comfort you and to live within you. And yet choosing to stop focusing on the problem or the struggle or the disappointment or the what if ourself. And to choose for our heart not to be troubled. And to choose to trust Jesus for the everydays and the everythings isn't always the easiest thing to do. 
why should we trust Jesus? If the remedy for a troubled heart is to trust Jesus, why should we trust Jesus? And in the text this morning, Jesus gives three reasons. There's all sorts of reasons, but here he gives three. And the first reason is in in verse 1 as we continue. And that is we can trust Jesus because of his presence. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Or you trust in God. Trust also in me. And I want you to note a couple of things about verse 1. First of all, Jesus is putting himself on the same playing field as the Father. And if you were to go down to verses 7 through 11, 12, you would see Jesus has a lot to say about his relationship with the Father. They are in partnership. They work very closely together. In fact, when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is making a claim of deity. And then the second thing you need to understand is about the audience who would have been hearing this. A core belief of a Jewish God-fearing man or woman was this. The omnipresence of God. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 tells us to be courageous. Why? Because God is always with us. And any Jew would tell you, although I can't see God, I've never seen God. He is always present. Look at our history. It is a testimony to the constant care and protection of an ever-present God. And so Jesus says to his disciples, you believe in God even though you don't see him. You believe in me because I'm standing right in front of you. Keep believing. Your faith doesn't need to decrease just because I'm not going to be visible anymore. I will never leave you. Spiritually, I will always be present with you. And if you trust in God, even though he's not visible, keep trusting in me, even though I'm not going to be visible. I'm not going to be hindered by my physical body. I will be everywhere. And understanding the significance of my spiritual presence, or understanding my, my spiritual presence, uh, is, is far more significant than relying on my visible presence. You're troubled? Stop being troubled. Trust me. Why? Because I'm with you. I will never leave you. And there is great comfort for us knowing that we're not alone. And we know that in our everyday life. I remember when Alice and I first were married and I was traveling on business. She hated when I wasn't home. And it was comforting to her when I did get home because she didn't like being alone. Uh, My son Graham hates going downstairs. He knows there's nothing downstairs. But he wants Jack to go with him because there's comfort in not being alone. Listen to the words of Scripture and the comfort that we can receive from it. Matthew 28, 20. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Hebrew 13, 5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. 1 Peter 1, verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Why is Jesus worthy of our trust? Because he's always with us. He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And then as we move on, we come to a second reason. And that's the promises of Jesus. And and obviously this could be a, a whole sermon series in itself. And we could go through the Old Testament and the New Testament looking at the promises of Scripture. But Jesus very specifically focuses on a, on a, a specific category of promises. That being uh, to do with the glorious future that awaits his followers. Jesus knows that the disciples are in turmoil. But he knows this by helping them to focus and to understand and to see the future that awaits them. It helps them to go through the pain and the struggle of getting there. And we know that's true. We know it's true in everyday life. Whether it's exercising or, or dieting or, or, or gardening, gardening or, or doing schoolwork. Like sitting in the garden, I am assuming pulling weeds is not a real fun task. And, and it would be easy to stop. But, but when you know what's ahead... It makes it easier to go through the weed pulling. And sitting and doing homework, knowing uh, if that was all that there was, that's not an easy thing to go through. But when when you're looking at your your graduation and and maybe the career that you want to follow, it it makes it easier to go through. And, and, And so we see that. And the same is true for followers of Jesus. The glories of heaven overshadow our momentary struggles and troubles. I've, I've told you about a lady. I was thinking about this this morning. In 30 years of preaching, there's one individual I talk about, perhaps take Allison out of the equation, but there's one person I talk about more than anyone. My example in so many situations. And she was a little old lady that went to the church I grew up at who was crippled from birth, who uh, refused to be looked after, so she looked after herself. She, she didn't have a pleasant odor about her. She, she wasn't a cute old lady. You couldn't understand what she said most of the time. And yet she loved Jesus. And never once did I ever hear her complain about her lot in life, her situation in life. She was too busy on the phone praying with people in her apartment complex about their problems, about their struggles. She would write, my dad was in a singing group. She would write verses for them to sing. And often it was focused on the glory that awaited her. Her great hope that there was a day coming where her body would be healed. She would feel no more pain. People would understand what she said. The glories of what await us overshadow our momentary troubles and struggles. And Jesus wanted to reassure his disciples, stop being troubled. I will always be with you. And there's a glorious future that awaits you. And he describes that. My father's house is plenty of room. There's a place for you in my father's house. I don't know about you, uh, I miss those days where I could just go back to my parents' house. That was home. 
and just lay back, kick off the shoe. Didn't matter when I showed up. If I was hungry, I felt free to raid the fridge. They always welcomed me. I always felt accepted. I could be who I was. Jesus says, that's what awaits. You're a child of the Father. And there's room. There's a room for you in your Father's house. And Jesus says, if it weren't so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus says, I'm going because I got some preparations to make. And theologians have debated what Jesus is actually talking about. Often we, we kind of just uh, uh, default to think, well, Jesus must be going. He was a carpenter. He's going up and building rooms in, in heaven and, and working on the ambience. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure that's not what, what uh, Jesus is saying here. Uh, I think part of his preparations is to make sure that everything is done to ensure that all who are invited will be there. I think very directly what Jesus is saying to his disciples is there's a place for you in my father's house, but the way hasn't been prepared yet. Sin hasn't been atoned for. The sacrificial lamb has not been slain. God's justice has not been satisfied. Death hasn't been defeated. But in three days, all the obstacles that would hinder our and the disciples being in direct relationship with God would be removed through the preparation that Jesus would make. And then Jesus says, and I'll come back. To those disciples, what encouraging words those must be. That for those who are followers of Jesus, if they haven't already died and been ushered up into glory, Jesus will come back. And there will be a grand reunion and he will take his followers to be with him. What a glorious hope we have. And so we can trust Jesus because of his presence and because of his promises. And then finally, as we end uh, the text this morning, because of his person. Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They're in the upper room, and, and this, this could be a sermon all by itself, and so I'm just barely going to scratch the surface of this verse, but there in the upper room, Jesus is making a very exclusive claim, well, one that's not too politically correct these days. Jesus is saying, I'm the way. I'm not just going to show you the way. I'm not just one of many ways. I am the way. My death and resurrection is the way that you can receive forgiveness and have access and a relationship with my Father. I am the way. And if you reject it, there is no other option. Brian Miller may have option B. There is no option B when it comes to God. There is no other way that we can find ourselves in the presence of God than through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to them, I'm the way. Through me, you can have direct access to the Father and you can bring your struggles and your troubles and your problems right before his very throne. I'm the truth. I won't lie to you. In me, there's stability. I'm not going to deceive you. I'm not going to manipulate you. I am the truth. I'm the source of truth. 
And I'm the life. I'm the source of eternal life. And that was comforting words for those disciples. And it's meant to be comforting words to us as well. And so Jesus says, stop being troubled. Trust me. Believe me. I'll always be with you. There are so many promises for you. I will provide for your every need. And there's a glorious future awaiting you. And trust me, because I am the way. There is no other way. And all throughout scripture, we see this. When followers of God find themselves in situations where their heart is tempted to be troubled, where they're discouraged, where they're confused, the solution is this. Bring to mind what you know to be true about God and about his son and about the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Bring to mind what you know to be true about the triune God. Bring to mind the promises of scripture and in them find your rest. Pearl.